Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I am joined by poet and author Eleanor Swanson. Eleanor, how are you today? I'm doing well. Good, good, yeah. How are all the listeners out there? I hope they're doing well also. I hope so too, yeah. We're we're still pulling out of the pandemic as we record this, and hopefully you're surviving as well as, as anybody can be expected. Yeah, I've had my uh, two inoculations. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to my second one, I think, next week. Yeah, good, good. Then are your classes going fairly well? Are you are you teaching this semester? No, no, I'm uh, I'm just writing. That is what I'm doing now. Oh, fabulous. Is, uh, writing, well, writing, writing. That's that's wonderful. So, Eleanor, maybe you could give the listeners a little bit of information on your background, your uh, upbringing and your college uh, career. Sure, I can do that. Uh, as I just mentioned to Brian, I'm a native of Florida, Miami, Florida, to uh, be specific. And uh, so I pursued my undergraduate and postgraduate, early postgraduate education at the University of South Florida. And interesting, I guess it's interesting, it's interesting to me that my first uh, area of specialization was British literature and I wrote my thesis on Samuel Beckett Hmm. and yeah and really moved on from there Uh, reading the three novels of Samuel Beckett the trilogy is uh, maybe enough to make someone go mad (laughs) (laughs) but I'm still I'm still here I'm still here and I said okay well next step is um uh, PhD and I searched it out and I found a program I think a really good program the University of Denver uh, which uh, offered at that time and still does a concentration in creative writing and uh, that's become a lot more popular now but it wasn't so popular then so I specialized in early American literature and creative writing and wrote was able to write my dissertation as a collection of short stories. So, you know, that was that was really good. And uh, ended up uh, uh, having the opportunity to teach a tenure track at Regis University where I taught uh, a variety of things, many, 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 many things from uh, the literature of social change to for once a long time ago, mm. I taught a course called uh, The Living in the Dead, and it was a an undergraduate course on the vampire. Oh, really? So that was fun. Hmm. So, yeah, yes. I, I, yeah, I, I bet you had quite a collection of students in that class. Oh, yes, they loved it. But, you know, after a while, you have to retire those. Uh, plus, uh, plus uh, reading and writing about vampires kind of gets to you after a while. Yeah. Well, since since the uh, since vampires go back 
very, 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 very far in history. It's it's not just a, it's not just a a phenomenon of the 1800s. Goes back very far. Oh, um, interesting. But it was fun. It was fun teaching that, and I taught poetry and uh, poetry writing and fiction writing and and it was great. And then I taught in the uh, uh, Masters of Fine Arts program for a while. And then I said, you know, what I want to do is just write. And so that's what I've been doing. You're you're talking about vampires, and I just finished reading a book called The Discovery of Witches. Oh. And I found that to be a really interesting read. Well, what was that really about? Well, it's a it's a trilogy, and it's it's really just a story, but it well, from my view, it's a story, but it happens to have witches and vampires in it. Oh, and what the, a combination! Yeah, and 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 demons, and how they fit in with the uh, world of warm bloods. I think they call us. Interesting. Eleanor, I, I became familiar with your works when I was watching a PBS show um, on the uh, Colorado Cold War, Cold, Cold, Cold Wars. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they had several quotes from your uh, poetry book that's called Trembling in the Bones. And they, they must have quoted you, I don't know, half a dozen times through the documentary. And I thought, oh, I've just got to have this book. And I, I read through it and it's just, it's fascinating to me how you've captured the, the feeling and the sentiment of a mining community and presented it in the form of poems. Well, it's interesting. Um, my first book was um, a, a Thousand Bonds and that's Marie Curie and the discovery of radium. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. Uh, that really came piecemeal. Yeah, I just started writing poems about her and her fascinating life. And uh, my husband said, well, why don't, you know, why don't you write a book about her? And so I did, but it was, as I said, it was, it was piecemeal. Uh, yeah, took a lot longer than trembling in the bones, but trembling in the bones wasn't piecemeal. It happened um, very quickly. We were on a trip. I think we were heading to Taos, and we saw the sign Ludlow. Yeah, and we had no idea. Mm -hmm. It was just a little dinky green sign. It's it's not a dinky green sign anymore because people know a lot more about. Ludlow and the Ludlow Massacre than uh, when we traveled there. But we walked around the grounds. It was a very, very hot day in that area. And one of the first things I did was to walk down into what's called the pit. And the pit is where women and children died because uh, basically when the guards set fire to the camp, they were suffocated. And the only one who survived was Mary Petrucci. And she tells her story. Uh, it's the last poem in the book. And and by the way, if you recall any poems that you would like for me to read, I, I have the book right here. 
So let me know, and I can read something for your listeners. Yeah, you know what? One of my very favorites is on page 24. It's called Starkville Mines Explosion. Oh, okay. I have I have the second edition. I was lucky ah. that this came out in the second edition. Okay, but let me have a look here. Yeah. I think I can find it, Starkville. Um, you said that was on page... In my book, it's page 26. Okay, 8... 20, uh, sorry, Star- so 24. I got it, eight, page 18 in this book. Okay, Starkville Mine Explosion. Well, you know, uh, I'm sure it's not a secret to anyone who reads this, is how much danger there was in the mines. And uh, I know it'll be interesting to people who know about coal and coal mining. But one of the reasons was, you know, it's it, it goes without saying, that it's dry in Colorado. Yeah. And one of the things that didn't happen was that the mine owners would not wet down the mines. And so there was always a possibility of an explosion. Uh, it was very, very, very dangerous. And so it's Starkville mine explosion. The wings of the angel of death flap in the dark the newly widowed and fatherless hear that push overhead the disturbed air the whispers of those who have come to take out the bodies a makeshift morgue is ready with gunny sacks spread on the greasy floor with tubs and tables ready the coroner waits writes damon runyon for a denver paper But Runyon can't come near the blown out mine. The timbers that fly out the entrance from the force of the blast form an an enigmatic pattern. Someone on the top of Fisher's Peak could stand under the relentless beating wings and see those fractured beams fanning out from the mouth of the sepulcher in the very shape of the dark angel. The bodies will be taken out in darkness, ordered the mine officials from their private rail car, beautifully named Sunrise. The bodies whose terrible wounds can't be seen for fear of panic and riots. Reporters must stay a quarter mile away. Orders must be followed or they'll have their cameras smashed to bits. Four days have passed since the blast and 40 men and boys are finally taken out. Their dinner buckets empty and not a mark or blemish on one of them, all suffocated in the after damp. Like the men of Hartley Colliery, at the end they listened in the dark to the trembling earth and felt the air grow thin and scarce as the cold, dark form quivered overhead, waiting. It's amazing to me, Eleanor, how you captured the emotion and the feeling of what had gone on, and probably from uh, very little information, uh, maybe a newspaper article. It's just amazing to me how you've captured that. Well, you know, that's... That was the goal. And of course, Damon Runyon was a real figure and the the book's really named after uh, the Hartley Colliery disaster, which was in England. 
Yeah. Trembling in the bones. Yeah. And how, uh, how the men, uh, you know, they, that was written about how they, uh, they are waited for death because there was no uh, hope after Hartley Colliery. And after Hartley Colliery, by the way, uh, which was one mine shaft, uh, after that, they never ever built another mine that had fewer than two mine shafts. Mm. Yeah, and for anybody that uh, doesn't know, which is probably a, a lot of people, this it's events like that that led to the coal miners striking. And back a hundred years ago, coal pretty much drove the nation because of the steel mills. Oh uh, yes, in in Pueblo and 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 around there, and the yes, nation Pueblo. was just yeah, the nation was just uh, hungry for coal, and there was a lot of immigrant workers uh, that worked at these places, and events like that eventually um, created a strike where. All these miners moved into a tent village, and eventually that was that was, that was Ludlow. Yeah, Ludlow, and eventually the uh, I'll just say authorities came in and wreaked havoc. They started fires and they slaughtered a lot of the people there. And like you say, there was one survivor that chronicled the uh, the uh, events. Her loss of her uh, children. But, you know, after this happened, uh, there was a huge amount of outrage. And Rockefeller came down and tried, excuse me, to pretend that he was a friend of labor and yeah. kind of console the miners. Uh, and uh, before everything broke out at Ludlow, they used to keep the lights on all night and fired Gatling guns over these people in their tents. They did. Yeah, and so it, yeah, it, it wasn't a Boy Scout picnic out there to begin with, and they um, were terrorized almost from the start to the very finish. Yes, but you know, they, they were very, very brave people. And I'm gonna say, especially the women, because the men, once the strike started, uh, first of all, there's a poem about them being uh, kicked out of company housing in September in the snow with their dogs and their, their, their meager belongings. And the guards would just come to the house and they would just say, get out, get out. And that's chronicled how they were uh, made to leave in this uh, winter storm. Uh, yeah. And the, and the, and the, the wife of the uh, railroad man, uh, she was quite a witness to all of this. And of course she was American, but get out, get out, get out. And so, you know, they got out. And uh, uh, the, um, uh, what union? brought them their tents eventually the the, the mine workers union yeah uh, brought the tents but uh, before the tents came they were uh, huddled in the cold and the, but the men uh, weren't employed anymore so they were out hunting and trying to get food for their families and the women were uh, 
cooking and cleaning and expressing solidarity. I, I'm going to try to read one of those poems. Yeah, there's there's a handful of poems in the book about the, how st- strong some of the women were. And I was uh, equally impressed by those. Let me see. Uh, I think I'll do... Um, looking at a photograph of myself. The whole Strike Bloodlow Camp uh, section four has a lot to do with um, women and their role. But let me see if this kind of fits the bill here on page six. It's page 63 of the second edition. Yeah, 68 in mine. Looking at a photograph of myself. Um, either that one or woman meeting Dover. Um, I'm standing next to a table with other miners' wives as we are making food for the strikers. I am mixing cake batter in a bowl and smiling. I study my own face, the way my arm curves toward its mission, the way I watch my fingers grasping the spoon as if I see it going about its work magically. We are a crowd, we women, walking around the table as if we have been conjured. We foreigners from here and there who learn the English word for strike before we learn the one for bread. Next to me stands Maria, who taught me how to knead a lump of dough until its surface glistened like a newborn skin. Seedy stands across from me she died in the cellar with her little ones, Lucy and Ona Friel, when the militia burned our tents. Charlie, her husband, died too, shot in the back, running to his tent to get Seedy and their children. As he was dying, he asked to sing, hear a union song. I thank the stranger who handed me this photograph, an image that keeps alive the story of who I was then and what I learned to do. Yeah, very powerful, very powerful. It's true, I mean, it sounds like it's not true that he asked us to hear a union song, but he did. Hmm. How do you put yourself into a frame of mind to become the people that you are writing the poem about? Well, I mean, that's what persona poetry is all about. I mean, I'm not that woman, but mm-hmm. I can identify with uh, what she did. Yeah. And as for the men, I'm trying to think how many poems are told from the point of view of, of a man. Uh, oh, let's see here. Well, Billy in the low ground, some of them, Billy in the Low Ground, of course, is a famous uh, bluegrass song. Mm. So that is kind of the background for that. But that is not uh, really a persona poem, but it is about the miners before the strike. They're dancing and they're enjoying the music and they're enjoying that particular fiddle tune. But in that poem as well, organizers for the union are circulating through the crowd. And so that's a kind of subtext 
in that particular poem. They're right there. And they're, mm. they're trying to get support for a strike. And they did. They did. Yeah. Now, was the strike successful? Uh, if you read the aftermath, part of the answer to that is no, it wasn't. Was it in vain? No, it was not in vain. But uh, it woke people up to what mining during that period of time was all about. And there were, as you know, other nearby mines in the Trinidad area. Yeah. Uh, by the uh, all, all over the place. So it wasn't just it wasn't just Ludlow. It was the major major story because of the people who died. And it's called a massacre, although uh, it, there weren't deaths in numbers, but there were this the terrible burning of the camp. And if if you ever think about it, uh, you might want to look at photographs of the day after. Maybe you already have, mm. where people where where Mary Petrucci, for instance, came out uh, of and lived, she lived. Her children died and she lived. But she came out of the, of the pit and what she saw was uh, devastation, just complete devastation. The Red Cross came in, tried to help people out right away, um, but it was a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. I would I would think you kind of feel a, a kinship or a connection in a way to yeah, maybe even current day coal miners because the, the activities are very much similar even if they're a lot safer and they've got uh, unions that help them in many ways but some of the I guess the perils are still exist. Well, I mean, I haven't been in a contemporary coal mine, but if you think of the perils of this period of time, that isn't really so long ago. Yeah. Uh, timbers that are not, uh, they, they haven't been able to shore up properly and they crash on them. I mean, I don't know uh, in a contemporary mine. Uh, interestingly, but not interesting enough because I didn't get the specifics. It was a town and uh, where was it? Probably in the Virginia area. And uh, their minds had been shut down. And these people were talking about the hazards of working. And this was contemporary. Hmm. Um, and I also often think about, uh, have you seen the John Sayles movie, Mate One? No, it doesn't sound familiar. It's an incredible film. And hmm. it's about, it's about, uh, striking miners and and what they went through but really john sales is a fabulous director and you won't regret you won't regret seeing matewan m-a-t-e-w-a-n interesting i just watched one on netflix called mine nine and it was about uh east a uh, uh, coal mine in the east where they had a uh, mining accident and it was really well done i thought like nine, like the number nine? Yeah. Okay. I'll look that up. But definitely mate one. Uh, yeah. 
it's stunning it's a stunning movie and it's yeah. all about it's all about uh unionizing and uh, hmm. lack of safety in minds it's hmm. very i i don't want to say brutal but it's it really shows what it was like for these people and their families yeah hmm hmm you know, it's interesting, Eleanor. Um, engineers are not taught creative writing, but we're supposed to be creative people. We're supposed to have creative minds, but our writing is largely technical. And so it, it would be interesting to me if there was a course of creative writing for technical people. Well, just... I'll, I'll almost bet that at Colorado School of Mines, there is such a course. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll check there because I have some connections there, of course. Yes, I think so. And I taught, uh, I didn't teach uh, uh, creative writing for engineers, but I did a lot. I, I worked for uh, the Denver Institute. In fact, you might find it funny that uh, I did a lot of technical writing and I wrote, I wrote um, an entire manual about um, shale hmm. in the Western Slope. Yeah. Huh. I can tell you uh, why it was a failure then and why it's still a failure. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a oh, promise, yes. certainly, that went unfulfilled. Yes, it did. Absolutely. And my my book, I wrote a book. <laughs> I wrote a book. I'm not a scientist, but yeah. I wrote a scientific book because I was uh, doing technical writing then. I wouldn't want to do it now. Uh, and I taught. I did. I freelanced, and I did. I did teach creative writing to engineers and scientists. Way hmm. back then. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> It happens. I, I I would encourage you to see if they have one at mine. I'm trying to think of my uh, person that I know. I just can't. I just can't come up with his name right now. Who's uh, who's uh, uh, in the English department there? Yeah, I don't know anybody in the humanities there. I wouldn't be surprised if he taught a course like that because he's he's a fiction writer and a poet. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, brave new world. I no, the, I, you're exactly right. Is uh, creativity uh, needs to be multifaceted. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to be only creative in one aspect. Well, and I remember in some of these workshops that I gave, uh, with all due respect, uh, some of the scientists and engineers there thought that creative writing meant being flowery mm. and i had to kind of you know again respectfully say uh this is not going to work this uh is not going to work because it's it's not clear and one of the main things that uh scientists and I don't want to say that engineers aren't scientists. Let's yeah. just say engineers and other scientists. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that makes them creative is absolute clarity. Uh, yeah. 
absolute and you know on the on the level of diction and syntax and all of that you can't get flowery or you'll you'll lose it you really won't be able to convey and see that's what's interesting to me and I'm my husband's a chemist uh, analytical chemist uh so uh and that's that is a why uh not because of him but when i wrote uh, a thousand bonds mm-hmm. marie curie and the discovery of radium i had a couple chemists read over it to make sure that it was accurate uh because of course she was a mathematician yeah and a physicist and uh so i had to make sure that everything was right and i think it it kind of was yeah i'm i'm going to have to read that book i think you'll like it yeah. i did because she was um she's the only person well let's say the only family in the history of the nobel prize she won with the first one was with her husband and uh what's his name the frenchman uh i can't remember so the three of them shared the first nobel prize and uh then she and pierre won a nobel prize and then she won a nobel prize and her daughter and son-in-law won a nobel prize and uh her other daughter who was married to one of the nobel administrators won a nobel peace prize so <laughs> a lot of uh, nobel prizes in that oh, one it's true. group but she uh, scientists hated her they hated her even uh, even einstein had yeah. he had snide remarks to huh. make behind her back huh. but she uh she prevailed yeah she prevailed and uh she was amazing she was a trailblazer as long as she did yeah she was exposed to radium for as long as she was exposed mm. she yeah, was 69 years old yeah yeah Well, Eleanor, I think the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is somehow in your spare time you found it possible to mentor men who are incarcerated in the Sterling Correctional Facility. And How I found them? Um, well, what Well, what I, I have a that? dear I have a dear friend called Wayne Gilbert who has been involved with uh mentoring at Sterling for a long time. And then uh oh maybe a couple years ago, I think he misspoke himself publicly and they they said you can't come here anymore. Um but I've been there. <coughs> Excuse me. And so really it was Wayne uh who gave me the opportunity. I gave a workshop there and uh I have been corresponding Well, one one of my mentees has just been released after 22 years in prison. So wow. he'll probably still be my mentee, but he's not incarcerated anymore. Hmm. And uh then I have another um another one. I just had the two, but we corresponded very regularly. And now uh it's interesting. I've never known anybody in prison that long, but he's a great poet. and uh he's going to have a book that's going to come out from Liquid Light Press and I like to think 
that my mentorship and Wayne's, Wayne's also have really enabled him to have his first major publication. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. It is. He was incarcerated uh, when he was 16 um, for life in prison, which was then and is now illegal hmm. to incarcerate a juvenile and give yeah. him life. Yeah. But he's out and he's going to get married in May. Oh, what a, what a <laughs> nice, yeah, what a nice ending to the story. It is. So, uh, that's, I don't have, I just have, uh, I just have Matt right now. I don't have any other mentees because Nathan is out into the world. Yeah. So Eleanor, it seems to me like a common thread through this conversation is that you've found something to be passionate about and you took all the steps that you needed to fulfill the, the, um, whatever goals you had in mind, whether it was writing a, um, a novel or mentoring the prisoners or writing this collection of poems about the, the coal mine strike that you've, you've just found these passions and you've dug into them and held on to them until they got to be completed, I suppose. Well, I, I don't think it's that unusual. Honestly, I think if you talk to other writers, they'll say that passion is what drives them. Yeah. You can't write unless you're uh, driven. You're driven by uh, a passion for your work. So I'm not alone. I'm yeah. not, I'd like to claim that I was unique, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's wonderful. And I think that's uh, a nice takeaway too from from this whole conversation so before i say goodbye to you is there any parting uh words of wisdom or, or pearls of wisdom that you could leave us with i i i wish i could say that i i had some pearls of wisdom yeah um but I, i'll just say to anyone who's considering being a writer that let your passion uh drive you because if you don't have that, or you know, if you whine and say, "Oh, I don't have any good ideas," or "I have writer's block," well, you're dead. Yeah. Politically speaking, because yeah. there's an interesting book, kind of an old book. I don't even remember the uh, author's name, but the title of the book is instructive because the title of the book is "If You Want to Write, Write." That's my hmm. that's, that's my pearl. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's a that's a good one. And I, I've also heard that if you're trying to write to make a fortune, to have a bestseller, that's probably not the best thing to do. But if you want to write for yourself or to write and then give it away to a hundred people, that well, that might be an even nicer way to go. You can do that, but I write to be read. Yeah. And that's why I have six books and another book coming out is I write and, and you'll see, I mean, I, you don't have a complete list of my publications, but uh, oh. it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, oh. You yeah. know, the articles and, and the individual poems, poems and 
and short stories primarily because yeah. yeah. that's what I do. I don't really write nonfiction. So I'm sending work out all the time. And uh, so I don't just leave it to, I, I, send, I send my work to good, uh, good journals and uh, publishers and I, I want to be read. And so, you know, that's one of the things I have to say as we're closing is that I'm extremely pleased that you found me because you liked my book. Yeah, and I was just thinking, and I'm pleased too. I was just thinking that I've got to figure out who amongst my circle of friends I want to hand this book to so that they can also enjoy it and hopefully they can hand it on to somebody else and and somebody else and somebody else and it'll just keep going because I, I think it's a, it's a really remarkable collection of poems. Thank you. Just stories, feelings. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, hand it on. Have a start a little book. Start yeah. a little book club. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And Eleanor, I appreciate your time today, and I know you're busy, so I am going to let you go back to your day. But I really appreciate you coming on with me today. Well, and I appreciate your time as well. And I thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right. Have a my good pleasure. rest of your day. All right. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.